Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi there, and welcome to Investment Uncut. Listeners will no doubt be aware that net zero is a huge theme of the moment, a big movement this year, this summer, in the run-up to COP26 talks in Glasgow in November. So we're delighted to be joined by a very large voice in, in that space, in that area. And that's David Hickey, who is a portfolio manager at the Lothian Pension Fund and the host of the Responsible Investing podcast. David, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dan. Hi, David. Welcome. Could you give us a bit of a sense of your role, I suppose, both the Lothian Pension Fund role, but also, I guess, the role that you have on your own podcast, which is very much relevant to today? Thanks, Mary. Yeah, for uh, about 15 years, I've been involved in uh, equity management. About six years ago, the lady at Lothian who used to fill out the PRI questionnaire retired and they needed someone to fill out the questionnaire. So I said, I'm sure I can do that. How hard can that be? (laughs) From there, I went on to have to learn everything about every single aspect of responsible investment that we did at Lothian. And through that, I was able to really upskill very, very rapidly. I mean, it took me, I think I worked it out at, at about 120, 130 hours to fill out a questionnaire in the first year because I was essentially doing it from scratch with zero knowledge. Uh, <laughs> so it's a real baptism of fire. The beauty of the, the filling in of the PRI questionnaire is that you see questions and you go, you know what, I could answer that in a specific way if we did this and we could answer better this, and it gives you basically a game plan for the next year. So that's how I got into responsible investing. So a bit of equity, bit of responsible investing, and I'm still have that mix, which is quite unusual in the investment space to be doing both frontline investment work and to be doing RI strategy work. And I'm no doubt we'll get into the detail of how those two things help each other and also take up lots of your time, I'm sure. Absolutely. And the premise for your podcast Yes, the podcast. So the podcast is called Talking Responsibly, and it features myself, Adam Matthews from the Church of England Pensions Board. We've both been given the ability by our employers to act as individuals in this endeavor. So it allows us to speak quite freely with our guests. Our guests have included people like the First Lady of Responsible Investment, Faith Ward, who is currently uh, head of RI at Brunel Pensions Partnership and is the chair at IIGCC, as well as being one of the founder of the Transition Pathway Initiative. We've had Mindy Lubber, CEO of Ceres, talking about the Climate Action 100 Plus benchmarks. More recently, we had Mark Kujifani on the podcast. Mark is, of course, the chief executive at Anglo-American Mining, the world's third largest mining company. So we're able to dig into many different things with very interesting guests. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's a fascinating podcast. I'm a regular listener. I found it really practical because you run pension schemes. You're talking to other pension schemes and asset managers about really practical day-to-day issues that I think are relevant to a lot of people. So hopefully listeners can pick that one up. David, just before we get into the conversation, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? There's a lot, but I think the, the most unusual one is that I am one of the most experienced Japanese swordsmen in Scotland. Uh, So I do a Japanese martial art called Iaido. 
spelt I-A-I-D-O for any listeners out there wishing to check on it. In Iaido, we draw Japanese swords, do kata with them, movements, and then put them back and repeat. I've been doing that for about 15 years now. I'm a fifth degree black belt and I have a school in Edinburgh where I'm uh, the head teacher. Fantastic. Wow. We've never heard that one before. That's brilliant. So fifth degree means you've effectively got that's like black belt level one, two, three, four, five. There's eight degrees of black belt available in this art. The way our art does it is for every level of black belt you have, you have to wait that many years before you can do the next level. So for my fifth dan or go dan, as they call it, which is a fifth level black belt, I then need to wait five years to get the sixth. Then uh, it's six years to get your seventh. And then it's actually, it changes, then it becomes 10 years to get your eighth, unless you are of advanced age, don't really have the time anymore. So I think if some reason parallel there to Bitcoin mining, it takes like longer and longer and longer the, the further you go into it, but let's leave that one. But <laughs> is it violent or just, we just, this is purely art? Well, because we're using real swords, we don't spar because that would be exceedingly dangerous. Uh, so it's all using kata or, or movement-based where we run through pre-imagined scenarios. It's about polishing the movement and in turn polishing the spirit as you do that. It teaches a lot of patience, which is very, very useful for an equity manager because a lot of people get impatient with their holdings. You'll notice uh, a lot of managers have very short average holding periods. My average holding period is well over 10 years based on my turnover levels. So I'm a patient man. And this really helps. I was about to ask if there are any crossover lessons for investing and you've just given it to us right there, but hopefully we'll find a few more. Anyway, let's get into the conversation then. So I sort of kicked off by saying, have a conversation around net zero. I mean, that is very much of the moment. And in general terms, I know it's something you've probably thought a lot about. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Where do you see that sort of general movement as it is today? Net zero can be seen as something very specific. It is carbon emissions minus carbon offsets equals a net zero number. So from a mathematical point of view, it seems quite straightforward. It kind of seems to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it's become a little bit of a rallying cry in that you need to have a net zero commitment. And it doesn't seem to really matter to a lot of people what that net zero commitment is, provided you have a net zero commitment or you're involved in the various net zero alliances of which there are very, very many now, which involve, I believe, going to lots of meetings and talking about being net zero. And I'm not entirely sure about how much net zero is coming out of those things. Now, if, if we look at what net zero means, I think that uh, the Institutional Investor Group on Climate Change, or the IIGCC, they have recently released the Net Zero Investment Framework which is, a, as it suggests, a framework that asset owners and asset managers can use to try and align themselves with a net zero scenario going forward. It's an extraordinary piece of work. It's really good. I think it's going to become the standard for people in how they manage their portfolio emissions going forward. But I do have issues with it, specifically Section 5, <laughs> which is about targets. As an asset owner, I know that my portfolio has equities, it has bonds, it has real assets, you know, it has cash, et cetera, et cetera, just like any other pension fund out there. And those have emissions attached to them. But the question is, in counting those emissions, what do you then do with the data 
and how do you utilize that data? Do we think that having carbon in and of itself is a risk or does it allow us to take those numbers and uh, engage with the companies that we're working with to try and reduce that carbon footprint, either because it's a risk or we just don't like carbon. From a fiduciary responsibility point of view, I think I'm skipping forward on the questions that you said we might cover, but from a fiduciary responsibility point of view, there's a question of whether we just say, oh, well, carbon's bad and therefore we're not going to touch carbon. Now, many people like to think that way and there are many... NGOs and pressure groups out there that just say high carbon, bad, low carbon, good. But it's really about pathways and about how these companies are decarbonizing. If we look at the actual numbers that people have and setting targets, et cetera, et cetera, I don't like it because I believe, well, I live in the real world. I don't live in my portfolio. Now, I want to see a decarbonization across the whole of the economy, but selling high carbon assets in my portfolio to reduce my carbon footprint, carbon intensity, whatever you want to call it, however, whatever measure you want to use, that's not necessarily going to make any difference in the real world at all. You sell an equity, someone else buys that. It's not like I'm going to Shell and saying, right, you know, I want my money back, go and shut that oil field, you know, scrap that bit of work and then get the money back and give me the money. That's not what happens when you sell your equities. You know, nothing necessarily changes in the real world. And I want real world change. So that's why holding on to your equities, engaging with your companies so that they can decarbonize and transition in an orderly fashion is very, very important. That really resonates with some of the stuff I've been looking at where we've been working with clients on this. And that's thinking a little bit more about alignment rather than just about emissions, I guess. And net zero, like you say, it's a movement for better or worse. And it focuses the mind on emissions straight away. You think this is like a measurement exercise and it's an exercise in drawing a line from here to zero in terms of the emissions. And it can miss out the sort of the alignment and the engagement bit, which is a shame. Absolutely, Dan. And I think that there's new interesting thoughts coming in. If you look at the Climate Action 100 Plus benchmarking that came out earlier in the year, there's bits in that now that are on a capital expenditure and where the capex of the company is going to. Now, I think that's super important because that's more important than just raw numbers. What we want to know is where the retained earnings of the company are being invested in the future. We want them invested aligned with a low energy transition. We want our bond funding. When we go to a company and we're refinancing bonds, we want to make sure that those bonds are being refinanced so that they can help the low carbon transition. There are lots of ways of doing that. And just because a company is currently high carbon, they might be very critical to creating a low carbon future. It just so happened that they currently have high carbon. So it's very important to look at a business plan's future direction and you can use free tools as well, like the aforementioned Transition Pathway Initiative. That is free to use. Just go Google it, Transition Pathway Initiative, put in the companies that you're interested in and have a look at what their business plans look like. And I think it's a lot more important to have that nuance than have these just these numbers that you say, oh, I want to cut my exposure to carbon by 50% by 2030. I could probably do that tomorrow. It'll take me 20 to 25 trades and I can do that. And it's utterly meaningless. So you have to have a meaning to the actual method rather than just chasing numbers. 
And I'm glad you raised the bond issue because I suppose historically it's been viewed as, well, equities is where you've got more control because you've got voting rights, etc. And yes, absolutely, you have. And as you've said, you know, you don't just want to sell everything that looks bad today. But actually, the new financing is generally from the bond market. So that's also so vital in this whole thing. Absolutely true, Mary. I mean, we're quite unusual in that we have got a policy on bonds at Lothian Pension Fund. And it is that we will not provide any new bond financing to companies that aren't aligned with the aims of the Paris Agreement. I think that's a really easy thing for people to do, but not enough asset owners, asset managers are willing to deny debt at the moment. And I actually think it's a lot easier to not buy something than have to worry about divestment and things like that. Just don't buy the damn thing in the first place. So David, I suppose thinking about the transition, and I know you've done a lot of work in it, and you reference things like the Transition Pathway Initiative, there are clearly some sectors that currently look bad, in inverted commas, and will have more sort of transitioning to do, if you like. What have you seen in terms of, I guess, trends and, and where you see those going in some of those very key sectors? It's really difficult. It's difficult from a technology point of view, because there are some sectors that are very hard to abate and they will remain very hard to abate. There are certain sectors like coal. Now, this has been a a hot topic for uh, investors for many years now, thermal coal. Um, Still a hot topic because there are companies in Australia. You look at Adani and the various listed companies around that that are providing railways to between ports and coal mines, et cetera, et cetera. And there are things that the investment community can potentially do with coal and, again, deny financing to things. I think Australia are an advanced enough economy to not have to dig for more coal. Certainly, their own economy could go carbon-free with solar very, very easily. Anyone that's ever been to Australia knows it's really sunny there. They've got a lot of potential <laughs> for solar, and they've got a lot of land to uh, to put those panels on. Now, then there's the other argument, because there are places in the world that are dependent upon coal, and there's really only one game in town. If we look to Anglo-American, for example, Anglo-American really under shareholder pressure have hived off their South African coal mining operations into a separate listed vehicle. So essentially, you know, when you do your carbon analysis of Anglo-American, you're not going to have those coal assets on that particular balance sheet, but there's still going to be a proportional ownership of this new coal mining venture. The problem you run into there is that we're forcing well-run, very transparent companies to get rid of specific assets because we as Europeans don't really like those assets anymore. And I think it's true. There's very little space for for coal in Europe now and little excuse to uh, actually keep investing in coal. But places like South Africa, that if you stop running coal, then the lights go out. So we need better strategies to help them transition in a meaningful and just way. As an aside, I come from a mining community. I was brought up in a pit village in Yorkshire called Rosington, just outside of Doncaster. And the deep coal mines in that area were some of the last to close, but they still close. And those jobs have never really been replaced. It's now there's lots of jobs in logistics and warehousing and things like that. And there's an argument that those jobs aren't necessarily as high quality as the old mining jobs. When you look at somewhere like South Africa, the mining communities around there 
will really be let adrift if we close those mines in a disorderly way. And the other problem you have when you're getting rid of these assets away from transparent companies like Anglo-American is that they're going potentially to private holders, to smaller companies that are not going to manage them in as good a way as the uh, large listed companies that we can get to talk to and we can influence. So we, we need to be very careful about how we transition and how we as the finance community kind of pressure people into various directions. And I suppose that's actually really interesting because as with many things in investing, it's about getting the right balance, I guess, isn't it? So you become too fixated only on the climate transition for your own assets. You forget about the things that are being thrown off. You forget potentially about other E, S and G issues, which could even be increased with some of these activities. And actually what needs to happen is a rounded approach that take all of those factors into account. Absolutely. Yeah. I think of this term, it's been called brown impact investing because people like to think of this greenfield impact investing and you can do all this. So I actually think, well, just buy the crappy companies and engage them. If you can get the worst performers to turn their performance around, you actually have a giant impact, a lot more than investing in things that are already quite good. And what's your view, David, on consolidation in some of these key industries? Do you think that's necessary? Do you think it's inevitable? Do you think it's a good thing, bad thing? It's a difficult one, consolidation, because it can be all of those things all at once. You know, why are we consolidating? We've seen consolidation in the steel industries of Europe. But that's because they've been under so much threat because it's not a very profitable business. So that's kind of forced consolidation and it keeps failing. We've seen that cascade that I just spoke about. We've seen it as the steel assets go to lower and lower and lower quality owners and they keep going bust and the owners are extracting probably very good salaries from them and, and making good return and just bleeding a few last little bits, but they're not making their industries last any longer. A lot of these industries are on the last legs. The podcast you did with Mark Cutifani of Anglo-American was really good. I thought really made me think about mining quite differently than I had before, actually talking about the benefit it can have to communities. And he'd obviously, sound by the sound of it, thought quite carefully about that spin-off and to do it in what he thought was a sort of a responsible way. But I suppose there's a question mark over whether the right thing was to make them do that or not. But one thing I was quite comforted to see in the IEA Pathways report from a couple of weeks ago was recognition that emerging markets pathways need to involve fossil fuels for a period of time for it to be a sort of just transition and there needs to be differentiation. But I guess one issue with a lot of that I have is that it gives fuel to the people who want to just ignore the whole net zero movement or push back against it. Some of the arguments you made on the lips of people who were saying, oh, the whole thing's just rubbish because you don't want to force people to divest stuff. And I guess that's sort of not what you're saying, is it? This stuff is complicated. It's not a reason to ignore it completely. It's a reason to be thoughtful about how you do it. Absolutely, Dan. I, I think we should avoid getting into these discussions online because when you're having these discussions online, there are only two views and it's for and it's against and there's no room for the kind of gray areas and nuance that drives real progress and that the investors that I'm working with are getting involved in but it's difficult and we've got NGOs on our backs as well the share actions of the world the follow this is of the world they have got a way that they want to see things done and think that we should do it in that way. All of these organizations have their place. They help keep us on our toes, but we shouldn't be blind to the fact that everyone's got an agenda somehow, whether it's the 
oil companies that are looking to prolong their existence and maybe that's going to be with blue hydrogen or something like that you know it kind of will switch to something else and call it a lot cleaner the green lobby want to see their way first and we kind of get stuck in the middle and you have to say well our fiduciary duty comes first first and foremost i'm not here to change the world my primary job is to make sure that there's enough money in the fund to pay my pensioners pensions when they become due everything else is icing on the cake that's where obviously a lot of the conversations we have with pension funds and investors start as well and i've detected a little bit of disagreement between yourself and your podcast co-host on that question you do see that idea of fiduciary duties widened a little bit in a lot of conversations when it feels like it's being put on the table more as a question for debate about whether delivering pensions in a world worth living in that sort of view i increasingly hear put forward yeah absolutely and it's an absolutely relevant view and i share some elements of that and there's some elements i don't i mean the beauty of the investment market is that for every decision you make there's someone else in the market taking the opposite side of that i want to buy a stock it means that someone else is willing to sell that stock at the same price so that kind of duality of ideas at a single price exists everywhere as my podcast co-host Adam says, deciding to not have an ethical viewpoint for your fund is in and of itself an ethical decision. I totally agree. And I totally get that. That's a real philosophical one, isn't it? My head's sort of hurting trying to yeah. <laughs> trying to get my head around that. It's, like, it's really existential, isn't it? It's very existential. Obviously, the organization that he works for has got existential labeling on it. So he's allowed to say clever stuff like that, that goes over my head. <laughs> it's really complicated. And it's good to have so many different views in the asset owner community that I'm close to. I do come from an investment background, so I am always going to be probably a little more investment focused than some of my industry colleagues that come from a more development or a sustainability background. And it's very important that all those voices are in the room so that we can find that path ahead, the best path for everyone to take. Should we maybe take it almost up a level, I suppose, from individual and institutional investors to the UK government, for example? So clearly commitments made at governmental level. What are your sort of views on those commitments? Have they gone far enough? Do they need to be revisited? Do you think they will be revisited in conjunction with COP26 activity that we're expecting this year? I think that these commitments will be polished again and again and again. They're very difficult to even come to these numbers. You know, I complain a lot about the data availability on my holdings, especially in the bond side. What can we get on our bonds? It must be very, very difficult for government to get meaningful data. So that will continue to get polished. I think what we need to see is meaningful action. Obviously, in the IEA net zero scenario that was released a couple of weeks ago before we were recording this, there were various mentions of banning sales of gas boilers. There should be no more oil exploration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it would be interesting to see the UK government take that sort of action rather than saying, oh, we'll commit to these numbers, these numbers, these numbers. Say, so, right, in 2025, all new houses will have heat pumps. There will be no more gas boilers. Now, there's a big gas lobby in the UK. And they're very close to the government. 
So that's going to be very, very difficult for the government to do. Likewise, if we say we're not going to allow drilling for any more new wells in the UK shelf, in the North Sea, around Shetland, Orkney, places like that, that would send a big signal. But again, big oil and gas lobby. And we do need those assets at the moment and into the foreseeable future. So if we stop drilling here, there will be the ever long argument about energy security. And we'll maybe need to import from Russia or something like that. It's really interesting. I've seen this a bit the same dynamic when I've been talking to asset owners about setting targets. It's almost this top-down versus bottom-up tension that net zero by 2050 is clearly a top-down target. You decided you want to do it, value in making that commitment and signaling it. Something like 50% cut by 2030 is another sort of top-down target. You can just say, right, we're going to do it and then we figure it out later, which is sort of where the government seems to be. But bottom-up stuff is more the no more gas boilers after 2025, no more exploration of oil. But that's where you're taking the really hard political decisions and having to make some real choices. Whereas coming out with another big sort of top-down number is almost a bit too easy, you might say. Yeah. And who's going to be in these posts by the time these targets are going to get hit? But politicians, on the other hand, they are survivors, aren't they? They will do whatever it takes to get voted next time out. They don't care about making promises for 10, 15 years down the line because they need to be in next year and the year after. And that's what's important. And if you start telling your constituents, well, you know that new gas boiler that you wanted fitting, you can't fit it anymore. That becomes very, very difficult. So that's the tragedy of the horizon here. And it keeps playing out. Uh, as you said, the top-down stuff is easy. The bottom-up stuff is very hard. But we can't do the top-down aims without getting the bottom-up right. It's a great point. And coming on to a really related question, which is often a pushback that I hear about this whole area in general, which is people say, well, it should be government's job, government's job to sort all this out, net zero, sort all that out. It shouldn't be up to asset owners to have any sort of impact on this. I've got my views on that. But where do you stand on that sort of take? I think it's a government job to a great extent, maybe not in the way that others do. I think that there needs to be the correct pricing of externalities. I think the market has failed and that there are externalities that happen like CO2 emissions that aren't properly priced. We're trying to price them, but we fail. I mean, economics is littered with bad pricing of externalities. Economists just can't do it. They're rubbish at it. <laughs> it's whatever externality you want. Is it crime in your neighborhood? Is it what happens if you don't educate children properly in certain areas? Is it a lack of social support to certain families? We don't look at the knock-on effects of all these things. So without carbon pricing, effective carbon pricing, worldwide carbon pricing, we're going to really struggle because going back to the gas boiler example, we're not going to see a large switch to heat pumps while ever it's a lot cheaper to heat your home with gas unless we get that right. So then we move back to justice. The problem is if you're going to make gas more expensive, it means Ethel from down the road, who is scraping by on her state pension in an old house that's not very efficient, suddenly can't afford a heating. You know, we talk about heat poverty, fuel poverty. We talk about it again and again and again. And it's all right for me. I work as a fund manager. I get paid plenty of money. You know, my fund manager mates are all getting paid plenty of money. If heat and prices double, it's fine. We can afford it. 
So these things fall disproportionately on the poor. Now, I come from a very working class background. I still have friends and contacts in the areas that I grew up. I have family who aren't as lucky in their financial situation as I am. This stuff matters to them. And we come on these podcasts and we go on these panels and we talk about, oh, we need to do this and this and this. There's a lot of people out there that are worried about getting food on the table next week. And they don't actually care about climate change. They don't care because they've got more important things like feeding their children, like clothing their children. We're in this middle-class bubble that I think it's very difficult to get out of sometimes. We talk a lot about these problems and how we're going to fix them and how we can save the world. And, you know, sometimes I need to catch myself and say, shut up, Hickey. You know, get the bigger picture. Yeah, there has to be justice here and we need to be more wary of that. And I guess that's partly where the government comes in because it's all very well us talking about moving our own personal finances, but actually it's for those who aren't investing in the markets. They're not trying to influence other people. They're just trying to get by and potentially the government's got a part to play in that and in the justice. 100% Mary. So David, final, I guess, area of discussion for today, COP26 coming up later this year. What should we expect to see over the summer? Are we going to have kind of loads of different announcements? Feels like there's a sort of building hype about it, but what do you expect we see in practical terms in the run-up? Yeah, it's quite difficult because there's been a lot of announcements already. I think the big things are going to come from the States because for any listeners that didn't notice, there was a regime change in the United States earlier this year. (laughs) And already the Biden administration has come out with a lot of changes there. So maybe we see even more leadership from the United States, because I think that's going to be what it takes, is that we need to see more leadership from the US. Beyond that, very difficult to know what's going to come. We talked about emerging markets. A lot of people will point at China and India and say, well, what about them? They're still doing X, Y, and Z. Well, there's there's kind of two counter arguments to that, especially with China. You know, they're in a different phase of their economic development to the US and Europe. And number two, why have the UK been able to reduce their emissions so much since the early 1990s? It's because we don't produce anything here anymore. We outsource it all to China. We can say, oh, we great, we've got we've got very low emissions over here. But we're not counting the imported emissions. And until we get, I think, better data on that, we start thinking about maybe border adjustments on carbon and stuff like that, we're not going to get anywhere. I'm looking forward to COP26 just because it's been on the horizon so long now. And I'm really looking forward to be, being in the rearview mirror. And I guess it won't be far from you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not far from me at all. So I'm based in Edinburgh and it's in Glasgow this year. It's going to be big. I hope people are able to come. I hope that we've got the COVID situation under control by that point because I think it's important to have people in rooms together talking this over. It's a lot easier to do it in person than it is over Zoom. So fingers crossed. Cool. All right, David, it's been a great conversation. As we start to wrap up, what's one thing you would like listeners to take away from this whole episode? Decarbonisation isn't so straightforward. It's far more nuanced and you need to look a lot more closely at where the assets are, what the communities look like that are dependent upon those assets, both the usage of those assets and the staffing of those assets. That grey area, the nuance we were talking about, is the main thing that people need to get their heads around. 
And David, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? The most underappreciated thing from my point of view is that people don't realize how interesting it is. I think any listeners that are thinking, maybe I'd like to get into investing. It's not all Bitcoin trading and and stuff like that. It's a lot of long-term, deep thought work. So if you've got an intellectually curious mind, you can achieve a lot. You can have a lot of interesting things happening. Just quickly then, recommendations for good books and podcasts other than your own, of course, that we will put a link to in the show notes. Clearly, uh, Talking Responsibly is right at the top of the list, but there are some great ones. So in the industry, I would say A Sustainable Future, which is the Man Group podcast with Jason Mitchell, Redefining Energy with Laurent and Gerard, and Cleaning Up with Michael Liebrich, a very, very good industry podcast. But if you want something that is non-industry, anything by Colin Murray, the BBC and Eurosports and BT Sports journalist, Fighting Talk, which I've been listening to for about 15 years now. There's one he does called Blood on the Tracks, um, which is where he gets a, a load of people in that should never be in a room together. One episode, he had Steve Davis and he had Skin from Skunk and Nancy and a couple of other people. And they basically compete for the right to be able to play the last piece of music in the show. So uh, go and check out Blood on the Tracks. There's two seasons. Fantastic. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you so much. Well, David, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me. Great to speak to you, Dan and Mary. Cheers. Thanks, David. That's all from us this week on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another discussion. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.